Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an intelligent conversation to which I have nothing to add. <laughs> there we go. Listen to Worldly. <laughs> yeah, dude, listen to Worldly on the Fox Media Podcast Network, wherever you get Good your network. podcasts. Good network. Good network. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind, and with Zach Beecham, who is back from parental leave and uh, enjoying the uh, the world of takes. Um, one of the co-hosts of Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Um, I thought we would talk about the um, collapse of constitutional government in the United States and attempted overthrow of the Capitol building. And here I thought you had me on to talk about parenting. Yeah, um, we will do a parenting show. We should get Vox Podcast dads together to to do a show sometime. Um, I assume people know what happened last week, although it, it remains somewhat. I mean, I can't even say it, right? So a a mom. Right. I mean, it's it's true. Like as someone who was who was kind of out of it um, for like personal reasons over a bunch of Friday and the weekend, the account of what happened Wednesday that I started that period with was totally different from the account that had kind of become apparent over the weekend because it, it appears that this is one of those things where watching the news in real time gave you only a partial sense of just what all was going on and in particular overstated the extent to which uh, what happened was a kind of carnivalesque, like people out of control, maybe light trashing of the Capitol. Whereas what we now have a picture of is that, that well, that was the motivation of some of the individual people who were involved in what happened Wednesday uh, helped mask what could have been a much more, what was a much more organized and could have been a much more successful literal hostage situation in the United States Capitol. Yeah, the 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 thing that that keeps getting to me, there are two images from it. I mean, there's maybe maybe three that really stick out in my mind as exemplar of of, of sort of what actually happened. Uh, the first is a guy in what looks like full paramilitary regalia, body armor, mask, etc., uh, with zip ties at the front of his bag in the chambers of Congress. Right. This 
Not only is this obviously threatening, but we know that there were plans among some of the rioters, and I don't know about this specific individual, wait to see what the criminal allegations are, but there were plans to kidnap members of Congress. And there were calls at the time to execute Mike Pence, who they saw as insufficiently loyal to Trump. Whether or not they were serious about that, I don't know. But that brings me to the second image, which is that they had erected a noose outside Congress, like an actual hanging platform. And this is is something that was a a real staple of white supremacist literature, specifically the Turner Diaries, which is maybe the most prominent uh, work of fiction encouraging white supremacists to act, in which at the very end, the denouement, American government is overthrown and traitorous people, including journalists and and Congress members, are executed by hanging outside of the Capitol. Um, And then the third image that illustrates how close we came to some of these worst case scenarios is that of one guard in the Senate, one Capitol police officer. They were completely outmanned, under-resourced for reasons that maybe we'll talk about, I don't know, but there was an opening to the Senate behind him, completely unguarded, right? And he couldn't stop the mob that was coming after him from getting there. So instead, he went into a different stairwell, a different direction. And the point was to misdirect the mob away from where they could get into Congress because they didn't know where they were going. And it worked. But were it not for this one guy's act, we could have had people interacting with members of Congress very, very easily. And we know what those interactions very well could have ended up being. That is to say, executions, hostage situations. Like We were inches away from something that was beyond catastrophic. This was already catastrophic, so I'm going to say beyond catastrophic, right, into like murderous rebellion. And we we had one of the Capitol police officers was murdered. Uh, Another, you can see, beaten quite severely by by the crowd. So, you know, the, the, the violence was not hypothetical, right? I mean, I think it's quite possible that you could see the behavior of a lot of the people. And clearly yeah. many of the people in this group had no particular plan at all. You'd see them wandering around or snapping photos and, and tweeting and things like that. But there were plans among some for acts of severe violence and there were actions, um, you know, deadly actions taken. I also think you know, fundamentally, this has to be contextualized in terms of the ostensible purpose of the initially peaceful protest, right? Which is that, you know, you can talk with anything about sort of process, right? Like, what did the protesters do? Did they stand around and hold signs? Did they block traffic? Did they storm a building? Did they smash windows? Did they kill a cop, et cetera? And there's also what were they trying to do? And the cause here from top to bottom, right, from the most innocuous behavior to the most murderous, was to somehow get Congress to set aside the results of the election and have Donald Trump continue to be president. And the White House chief of staff said in, I think, an infamous phrase that he didn't expect people to take Trump literally, uh, which I think is an important phrase because this question of should we take Trump literally has resonated for literally five years now. And, you know, an incredible number of Republicans were taking a course of action that did not make sense on its face, right? Josh Hawley and Kevin McCarthy, the the minority leader in the House, they were saying, 
that there were valid objections to the electoral college count, right? That like this was bad, that the election was being stolen from Donald Trump, but also that they weren't going to do anything about it, right? Like they were just going to take an ineffectual vote in Congress. And of course, if you talk to conservatives as of two weeks ago, that's exactly what they would tell you. That it's like, well, you know, this is one of these things. People don't want to cross Trump. You know, there are a lot of questions, right? It's just sort of cynical politics. But people, at least some people, heard all this and like they thought the Democrats were stealing the election from the Republicans. And they thought what Republicans say all the time, which is that Democrats are socialists, that they're going to make the country like Venezuela. And if you believed Right. If, if you believed that Joe Biden and congressional Democrats were stealing the elections and were going to entrench a Maduro-esque dictatorship, like, of course, you would try to do something about that. Right. You wouldn't just like go on Fox and whine like uh, Venezuela is really bad. Like that's that's a bad situation. And what you're, quote unquote, supposed to know is that, like, that's all BS and none of the people saying that actually mean it. Uh, but, you know. Sometimes people take political rhetoric seriously. Yeah, there are a lot of respects in which I kind of wish that there had been an uh, inside man, like the the Spike Lee film situation where, I mean, there are plenty of reasons where I wish that everyone who had left the Capitol on Wednesday had been immediately taken into custody, uh, not least because the U.S. attorney for D.C. said the day after that, gee, it would be a lot easier to get some of these people who the FBI has put out, you know, an APV on if we had had them in custody. But also because I think that what we have right now is a lot of anecdotal evidence from before Wednesday's rally, uh, you know, both journalists and kind of people who were doing amateur online sleuthing of far right fora and spaces that were ostensibly being used to promote the rally, but where there were also kind of para event plans being made around what might happen after uh these kind of person on the street reports from the rally, person on the street reports from as the Capitol was being stormed, and some kind of post hoc follow up interviews that have happened afterwards as people who have identified rally participants, rally and storming participants. And we don't have a great sense of who is representative of what, you know, what the majority of people were going and thinking, but something that I would love to see just a systematic array of answers to the question from people who were participating and people who encouraged participation in Wednesday's rally was, what did you think was going to happen after the president's speech? Like exactly what? Because we knew that the president was going to, you know, tell people to go to the Capitol. We now have reporting suggesting that the president himself wanted to walk with people over to the Capitol and was told by staff that he shouldn't. Uh, and so just said, we're going to the Capitol and then took, you know, a limo back home. You know, we we have this information about people having believed that it was their job to impede the certification of the electoral college process. And so if there's a critical mass of members of Republican members of Congress who were encouraging this because they thought that the sound of having a lot of people just peacefully protesting outside the Capitol for like a couple of hours was going to convince some squishy Republicans to vote against certification. Like, I want to hear that theory of the case. But because we've been stuck in the weather of whether to take Trump literally for so gosh darn long, we've never had a very coherent understanding of when the people who are doing this for the sake of theater do it, what in their mind is the message that they're sending and how does that differ from the message being received? And as we kind of talk about how to 
go forward in a post-Trump universe, you know, the president currently doesn't have the ways that he's been relying on to send messages to his followers directly. He's about to leave office in 12 days. The question of how the Republican Party is going to communicate to the hardcore base that was able to turn out on Wednesday is an open one. And digging into, okay, what are you telling them? What do you mean when you're telling them? Can you be explicit about that, at least when asked directly to the media? And how do you square that with what they're saying you're telling them? Seems to be a fairly important one going forward. Yeah, I I just saw a really interesting survey, uh, Dara, that speaks to the questions that you were just raising. It was done like right after the election uh, when it was clear that Biden was was going to win, but Trump was still claiming fraud. Uh, but it, it basically tried to do a fine-grained analysis of how Republicans were reacting to the fraud claims. And one of the findings that I think is um, confusing for a lot of people who don't follow this stuff closely is that the higher information the Republican voter was, the more likely they were to believe fraud allegations and to believe Trump, right? This isn't a situation where the, you know, the the people who are political junkies who understand the way things work uh, knew that they were being fed bullshit per what Matt was saying earlier. Like they believe what he says. And the more you care about politics, if you're a Republican, the more likely you are to take Trump seriously and literally, right? When the president says election fraud, you believe him. Why not? You voted for him. You think he's, you know, the guy who's saving America, And in that world, right, that upsets a lot of the lazy stereotypes of who these people are, uh, some of which you saw in an unfortunate Atlantic piece this week. Uh, But it's, uh, you know, a lot of these people, they're – they're not the the put-upon Trump voter that has become the staple of media representations, right? Like, one of them was a CEO. One of them flew there in her private plane. And that's not to say they're all that wealthy, but a lot of these people are, are middle upper-middle-class people who spend a lot of time on the internet reading and imbibing right-wing media and hearing what the president tells them and have come to believe in a whole worldview that is akin to the we're-about-to-become-Venezuela type thing. Democrats are, you know, potentially— if they're QAnon curious, uh, secret pedophiles who just you know, are destroying the world and eating the faces of children, right? And you know, if if you're in that world, if you live in that informational environment, and that's become in some ways the dominant informational environment for a right wing partisan today, right? That's going to profoundly warp the way that people react to political events, especially when they're given a degree of encouragement from political leaders who ought to know better. I mean, I do want to make just a sort of general intervention, which is that it's normally true that people who are more attentive to politics are more misinformed. Um, there's there's studies about this, right? And so it's like, you know, Democrats who don't like politics and don't pay attention to it and do poorly on political knowledge quizzes, like can you name the Supreme Court justices? Like those kind of Democrats were aware in 2019 that the economy was doing well. But like highly informed Democrats, like Vox readers and stuff like that, would have more erroneous assessments. And you have that with like the budget deficit in the Clinton years, things like that. And and the reason is that you get more um, sophisticated, quote unquote, in your understandings of these things, right? And like there's always sort of like another argument, right? And dummies who don't care about politics just sort of take events at face value. And like if there's a help wanted sign at the Wendy's, the job market's probably good. If everyone on TV is saying Joe Biden won the election, it's probably because he did win. And, and you know, conspiratorial people always have a lot more factual information, right? Like 
I have no idea like who killed JFK. Um, like a real conspiracy theorist will be able to tell you all about the events of that day and like who everybody was in the American government in 1963 and, and other stuff like that. Uh, because like normal people just don't know that much about things other than like their favorite sports team or what their kids' friends like to eat for lunch or something like that. Um, so so you always have that tension where like the really off base people are also incredibly knowledgeable it's this kind of like pseudo knowledge um about about what's going on but you rarely see it activated in such um a high stakes way by top leaders right so that you know that's really the the difference maker here is that trump personally kept pushing this forward not just you know in advance of the election or for like one court case in Georgia but up to the moment of certification and i think we still don't know why you know one thing about trump is that he dominates the news so much and his white house is so leaky that i feel like we we often get the vague impression that like we know all about the trump administration but like i couldn't begin to tell you like what donald trump thought the end game for this was and none of the many stories that have been written i think really tell you that not because the you know the the well-sourced white house reporters don't know what they're doing but because like they don't know either like they don't know as much about donald trump as they would like you to think right, right. Like, i mean I, I would say that it's probable that the people they're talking to don't know the answers to those questions because what we keep hearing over and over again and this week more than ever is that when donald trump is pushed on things that his advisors think are wrong or wrongheaded, he just stops talking to them. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if the people who are talking to the well-sourced White House reporters have never asked him, Mr. President, what what do you hope will happen on January 20th? Because that would be a recipe for the president to stop talking to them. Right. Because I mean, I do think it's worth saying, right? Had, say, like that heroic officer not led the mob away from the I, I mean, terrible things could have happened last week. But like, I don't think there's any world in which uh, a mob breaking into Congress, kidnapping House members, even bludgeoning senators, to like, it, it wouldn't have caused the election outcome to be reversed. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that, right? Like, I, I, no, but, right? Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. There's a really striking story. Um, did you, I don't know if you saw this, and maybe this is what you're about to mention. Um, the op-ed in the Detroit Times by, um, Rep. Pete Major. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I think right? it's like, Meyer. You know, the, the piece is it's really striking, right? Because he says he was talking to one of his colleagues who knew, like all of these people did, that what Trump was saying about elections uh, was ridiculous, but still voted to uh, block Biden certification after, after the assault. And the reason that this representative did that is they were actually intimidated by violent threats and by the mob. They were afraid for their family's safety that the mob might come after them next. And indeed, you've seen these people going after elected Republicans, including Lindsey Graham, who have challenged Trump after the events of January 6th in in airports and stuff like that. There are threats now that you're hearing about uh, protests targeting protests, armed protests, targeting legislatures, state capitals have been stormed, right? Like there is an actual threat of violent intimidation, which is successfully intimidating some legislators. So no, you're right, Matt, they would not have overturned the result of the election, but their violence is having 
an effect on the behavior of the people in elected office, which shouldn't be underplayed, I think. So I also want to add a little bit of thinking about the uh, nature of the current Republican Congress into this, right? Because Matt's analogy to like people don't tend to follow politics as closely as they follow their favorite sports teams, like the exception to that are the people who think of politics as sports, which is, you know, we can normatively talk about how unhealthy a way that is to think about things, but most normal people don't think of politics that way, right? Like most normal people don't care about politics that much. And when they do, it's because they're you know, they have particular material interests or they have a particular ideology that they would like to see. The idea that politics is worth following mostly as a team sport is disproportionately popular among political professionals, among the kind of people who like grew up following politics as sports teams and said, that's what I would like to do. And so it's not that surprising that there's a little bit of a disconnect between the people who have always understood politics to be like that. And that's why they're now in D.C. And that's why they're now in, you know, the Democratic or Republican Party and the people on the ground who have never had that orientation and are in it because they think it's a literal life or death situation. But we've also had at this point for a decade a shift in especially Republican House members toward people who aren't political professionals or who who, who either aren't political professionals and got, I don't think radicalized is necessarily a fair word, but who got brought into politics because they became convinced that they needed to change what they were doing with their lives because the existential stakes for society were high, starting with the Tea Party wave in 2010 and then continuing in kind of successive waves of Tea Party members getting burned out on D.C., new you know, new folks kind of bubbling up from the grassroots, or are this newer generation of people who, you know, maybe the Madison's Cawthorn of the world 20 years ago would have been kind of coming up in established Republican politics because they knew from a young age this was what they wanted to do. But instead, they're, you know, coming in as young outsiders and cultivating the idea of politics as life or death and doing things that are clearly designed to raise their own profiles and gain attention, but in the particular direction of, I am the true tribune of your interests. And so it's interesting to think at this point, on the one hand, Representative Meyer is himself a freshman congressman. He's the he's replacing Justin Amash, um, which I think says something very particular about residents of Michigan's third district. Um, but on the Senate side, the senators who, even after everything that happened on Wednesday, were still voting not to certify the Pennsylvania election results, you know, included some of the incoming, some of the people who were just coming into the Senate from there, including some people who weren't career politicians. You know, the fact that there does appear to be a correlation between how long or how little time someone has been in Washington and how likely they are to see this as a matter of life or death raises questions for me about like, what are the people who have at this point been Republicans in the House for eight or 10 years and haven't left, haven't gotten burned out, but like now have a totally different kind of experience than the folks for whom being barricaded into the House chamber was their third day on the floor? And how do they take a role in the Republican Party going forward? Or do they? Because kind of by definition, the folks who have managed to remain for the last eight years and haven't gotten a huge enough platform on their own to really take a stake in the party yet, but also haven't gotten burned out are the ones who are pretty good at going with the tides and not necessarily, you know, trying to steer the party in one direction or another. But, you know, I, I think it's worth noting some um, 
structural asymmetry between the parties in this regard, um, which is that particularly in the House, right, the Republicans have term limits for their leadership positions and their committee chairmanships, uh, and the Democrats do not. Um, So consequently, the number one House Republican is actually a little bit younger than the number four House Democrat. Um, And in general, House Republicans have a pretty pronounced tendency to sort of cycle, right? They, they they quit more and go be lobbyists more. Um, if you look at the, um, you know, top 25 or so most senior uh, House members, um, 21 of them are Democrats. Um, so the, the, the House GOP caucus replenishes itself at a much more rapid pace. The members from the safe seats tend to become committee chairs relatively quickly. They take their shot at a sort of major legislative gambit, and then they wind up being forced out of those positions and tend to retire. Uh, Whereas the Democrats, for one thing, you have to stick around forever uh, to ever get a chance at a big leadership role. And then once you have one, you know, like Nancy Pelosi, Steady Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, but also all the committee chairs, uh, you're not going anywhere. Right. So they so they linger forever and ever. And so Democrats sometimes feel just like a little behind the times on things like all of their formative political experiences like happened a generation ago. Uh, Whereas with with House Republicans and you see it's different from Senate Republicans operate more like Democrats. And so you've got these real old bulls around. Uh, But but House Republicans are very of the moment. You can really see that it's the fresh incoming freshman Republican senators and most of the House members who are like on board for this sort of Q-pilled post-Trump version of of the GOP. And it cuts across all sort of members, right? There's there's a lot of like gawking and horror on social media at Elise Stefanik um, because she's such a a bright young lady from Harvard. Uh, But like, that's just, that's just the point, you know, like she's super smart. Right. Like she's like a she's a real killer. Like she wants to succeed in American politics. And the way a really intelligent, really thoughtful person who's incredibly serious about obtaining and wielding political power judges politics is that what you should do is 100 percent back Donald Trump in absolutely anything he does, no matter how horrible it is, and not criticize, not actively engage in the most insane base behaviors, but also not criticize them. That the real issue always is that Democrats are being divisive and mean. And like that, that's what the best and brightest think. And I think we should take their view of that incredibly seriously. You know, um, more idiosyncratic people like Lisa Murkowski, uh, I find more appealing, but like she doesn't know how to succeed in Republican politics. She lost her own primary and then held on through this like crazy writing gambit. You know, I mean, I just think like that's that's going to be the future, uh, particularly because we keep seeing more uh, polarization on on education, on you know various other kinds of of social values, right? So that that the Republicans. Uh, obviously, a political party is not going to be led by low information, low trust, working class people. It's going to be led by smart, well-educated, deeply cynical people like Josh Hawley, like Tom Cotton, like Elise Stefanik, who believe that they can manipulate a 
gullible and potentially violent base of people into putting them in charge. And, you know, that's that's tomorrow. So we should take a break, but I do want to push back against some of this a little bit. All right. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I think that you're sketching out one possible future, uh, probably a range of possible futures, and it's, you know, we're, we are kind of now at about a week out at an inflection point where it's probably going to be a little clearer a week from now, whether that is one of the futures we're heading toward or not. But it is worth stating, and we got very strong senses of this in like the 48 hours after the event. And then as we got a more granular sense of just how serious the threat was, that there were members of Congress, including Republican members of Congress, who felt in personal danger on Wednesday and who felt a sense of anger toward the president for putting them in that situation and who did like who drew that line directly and who don't necessarily appear to be giving that up. As recently as yesterday, reports are saying the president talked to Kevin McCarthy and the president was, you know, trying to blame Antifa for the for the violence and Kevin McCarthy was pushing back saying, no, I was there. It was right. your people. It was MAGA. Well, I, and- I just think, but to me, that's the point, right? So like Kevin McCarthy knows that this is bad, not just knows it intellectually. He personally is angry and upset about what happened and wishes Donald Trump had done something different. But in his acts 
as a powerful politician. He is shielding Donald Trump from all accountability. He is blaming Democrats for trying to hold Trump accountable. And he is reiterating the election fraud claims. So like, that's all I'm saying, that like Republicans will have a range of, of views about this, but in their actions, they are going to endorse violent mobs trying to kill their political opponents. Like that's, that's the point of consensus. Yeah, but I think I think there's another there's another way that they could do this. And we're and like one of the one of the inputs for that is kind of the existential threat. Another input for that is we'll never be able to run this counterfactual, but it's worth asking whether the 180 on whether it was a good idea to keep debating the validity of the electoral college results especially in the Senate, uh where there was a like in the House, it looked like a, even even after even on Wednesday night, it looked like a fairly partisan debate. In the Senate, there was a lot of Republican Senate how dare youing going on towards the kind of Holly Cruz caucus, and it's worth asking whether that might have been quite so rapid had it not been Ted Cruz, who is a famously despised member of the Senate Republican Caucus, uh, and who is kind of famously distrusted by his own peers, because it it did seem to a certain extent like what was happening wasn't just people stepping up for the good of the country, but also people taking an opportunity to demonstrate that they were better human beings than Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. And that sentiment is something that we've also seen a little bit of in the donor class. You know, I, I think that for the attention that's been paid to the kind of deplatforming of Trump and the purging of various far-right and QAnon social media accounts and all of that, less attention has been paid to some fairly strong statements from corporate interests saying, these are particular members of Congress whom we have supported in the past who voted against the certification of the Electoral College results. We believe in the peaceful transfer of power. We are either not donating to these people anymore or we're not donating to anybody for a certain period of time. Obviously, you know, how long that remains the case and what that donation landscape looks like after the fact is an open question. But it there has been a certain reaction among a segment of the Republican Party to say, no, the, we are willing to name certain members of our caucus who crossed a line, not using their, their anger at the president to criticize the president, but using their anger at the president to criticize Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, other folks. And that makes sense if you think about, OK, they're, everybody's trying to position themselves for future leadership in the party. This is an easy way to distinguish yourself. You know, the fact that Tom Cotton, who you might have expected to be all in on the voter fraud claims, was even before Wednesday not on this side, does suggest that some people are trying to think about differentiating themselves in case in a future cycle it turns out to be an important question, you know, which side of the 2021 certification crisis were you on? But there's a world in which that effect, you know, the desire to knock out some potential competitors in 2024, 2028, et cetera, does have at least a short to medium term effect on what party leadership is saying about the importance of the peaceful transition of power and that sort of thing. And I'm not 100% convinced that the fear of Trump and the kind of long-term political incentives for the young that we were talking about earlier in this episode necessarily hold for the, you know, Republican senators who think they have a shot at the presidency or at being Senate majority leader in a future cycle, but who need to knock out some of these young, you know, firebrand conservatives first. Well, look, I think it's important in, in these kinds of conversations to not 
treat America as a sui generis case, right? Like right now, uh, in a lot of these conversations, there are analogies to past periods of American history and vague sort of demeaning references to this would happen in a third world country. Uh, I don't think either of those are really the best way to think about what's happening. Like right now, the United States is a country that is experiencing democratic backsliding, right? Like we are moving away from a consensus that democratic politics is the way to resolve our political disputes towards one in which force, violence, and compellence, sometimes through like semi-rigged elections or otherwise like controlled elections, are becoming normalized, right? That is just where we are. The question is, and I think the stakes of the argument that you two are just having, is like, does the, do the incentives of the Republican Party, which is the primary actor that has lost its faith in basic democratic norms, do they align towards further backsliding? Or and further uh, use and deployment of violence as a political tactic, or do they align towards some sort of moderation, some sort of push towards at least temporarily abiding by the rules of the democratic game? And I think there are like there are at least two important things to think about when we try to think about this big question, right? Again, judging from the experience of other countries who have gone down similar routes, right? The first is like, do elites suffer consequences for these things? Right. And does someone like Josh Hawley, and I think Hawley is really maybe not more so than Trump, but second only to Trump in terms of importance as a test case. Because if it weren't for Hawley, right, you wouldn't have had the Senate effort because Cruz came in only after Hawley. Right. And Hawley was the one who started, who broke the dam, so to speak. And without the Senate, the House couldn't have done nearly as much in terms of obstructing Biden's certification. So Holly is getting a lot of flack, and rightly so. The question is, does his political ambition suffer? Well, maybe these corporate donations dry up. Maybe they don't. Maybe he's censured by his colleagues. Maybe he isn't. And you have to, you have to track whether or not he's punished in the coming years, setting the stage for 2024, to understand the messages that other Republicans are going to get from this incident. right? And it's just not clear what signal is going to be sent. There are some promising signs, some dangerous ones. Uh, and it just, it sort of remains to be seen over time, right? What, what probability would you give that Josh Hawley will lose a general election to the Democratic Party nominee? Right. I think that's one of, that's, that's one of the dangerous signs. I would say zero, right? What are the odds that he will lose a primary challenge to another Republican? I would also say zero, right? Like he is at worst going to continue to be a backbench Republican Party United States senator. Um, I think maybe the upside to this is going to end up being smaller than he initially hoped when he took this gambit. But I think if you went back in time, you said, Senator Hawley, like, here's exactly how it's going to unfold. He'd say, eh, that, that's OK. That's that's a chance worth running. It's like, yeah, a person died and I lost a couple campaign contributions that I don't need because the level of polarization is such that people will vote for me against any Democrat. And also Democrats, Democrats aren't even going to bother to try to beat him, right? Like Democrats aren't going to nominate somebody with views on social and cultural issues that are repugnant to their own base, but might make someone competitive in Missouri. So I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Claire McCaskill was a senator not that long ago, right? It's not impossible for Democrats to compete in Missouri. Is it? I mean, no, no, no. I, I think actually absolutely the opposite. Claire McCaskill lost her reelection 
in one of the best national political climates for Democrats that you've ever seen, right? Like, it's true, relatively recently, Missouri was not as conservative and down-ballot voting was not as correlated with presidential approval. But like Claire McCaskill just showed that with incumbency advantage, with a reputation for moderation, in a D plus eight year, you lose, and it's not even that close. I mean, I think that there is a conversation that was suppressed by the sui generis nature of Trump and the, you know, the the fact that there were particular figures in the Republican firmament who thought that they'd lost an ideological battle when Trump became the Republican nominee in 2016 and then president who were more willing to speak out against him for those reasons. That, you know, the question of if the Republicans commit to being a backslider party, what do the Democrats do is a very like very big one. And to what extent is a popular front a necessary response? To what extent is that unlikely to cure any kind of underlying problems? Like that is a political project for an entire generation. It is all downstream of the question of whether Republicans commit to being a backslider party, right? And I think that the kind of anti-popular front folks in the Democratic coalition are anti-popular front in large part because they don't think it's a good idea for Democrats to assume that Republicans are going to go down that road. And frankly, partly because they assume that Republicans have already gone down that road. And therefore, there's very little way to short of a whole scale reform of the system, you know, kind of bring that back on track. Like either two party democracy is not doomed yet and we need to see what happens or it's already doomed. And therefore, trying to reconfigure the two parties so that they somehow get good people into office is not a political project worth engaging in. I mean, I don't want to litigate the details of the 2018 Missouri Senate race, but at the time, Hawley was seen as a very promising establishment-backed Republican who, like, really, though he could appeal to the Trumpists, yeah. also had an elite pedigree. Like, this is somebody who will be potentially facing legitimacy crisis and be, I mean, I don't know, potentially. But you, you want to do, I, I, we, we could do a bet. Yeah, no, I would probably bet with you is the thing. I'm trying to make the opposite case because the future is uncertain and difficult. Right, the, the argument is... Mitch McConnell may try to remain minority leader, may try to, you know, if they retake the Senate in 2022, become majority leader again. But like the next time someone who isn't Mitch McConnell is going to be leading the Senate Republican caucus, does Hawley or someone else who signed on to this challenge make a serious showing for a leadership spot? Or are they blocked because they're not trusted by members of their caucus to literally keep elected officials safe? That's kind of the, the, I think, short term indication for me. I think that it's fair to say that the presidentialization of American politics means that the stakes of that are a little lower than they might have been 20 years ago. Um, but it's it's not as if the Lindsey's Graham of the world or like people who are, you know, if you looked at that floor debate on Wednesday night, there were members who were genuinely shook. Right. And how long they bear that in their bones and how much they redirect it toward trying to stop the people who they blame for it from continuing to hold, you know, power in whatever ways they can, um, which admittedly are, are constrained, is like an open question. But I, I think I think the floor debate is really striking in this regard, because most of what they did when they were debating this after the Capitol was attacked was read their canned speeches that they had written beforehand, right? A few people seemed upset, but like the vast majority of the conversation that was going on in Congress afterwards uh, was <laughs> basically like reciting and rehearsing the main arguments. 
I was I was surprised at the number of Republicans who were willing to like who were willing to either set aside canned speeches entirely or who riffed for a little bit before engaging in their in their canned speeches. And frankly, the fact that there were people on the floor saying I was going to vote against certification and now I am voting for is like very little in contemporary American politics incentivizes that kind of I am going to give both sides of this reason to doubt my conviction. So that's what indicates to me that it that it is perhaps a uniquely influential moment in those particular politicians' trajectories. I just think that the in-the-moment reactions are not that telling, right? Like, when Donald Trump said that Ted Cruz's father had killed JFK and his wife was ugly, and, like, Ted Cruz was clearly mad at Trump, you know, and he stayed mad for a while up to and including his speech of the 2016 RNC speech. But, you know, Cruz is a smart, ambitious person. And, you know, he he came to the conclusion, ultimately, not that he likes Donald Trump, but that, like, even though on a personal level he is very angry at Donald Trump, he should back him unrelentingly. And I feel like that's what we have seen in the GOP, that the anger that existed, that the reality of that anger only underscores how powerful the objective incentive toward being a um, authoritarian political movement is. That it's not like they don't know or they don't get it or they like need to listen to this podcast and see. It's like they were they were fucking pissed a number of them, you know? But then they think about it. And it's like, well, you know, the real issue here is Twitter, right? Like the libs and and Twitter. And like, it's just like, I mean, I don't know. Like it, it's, it's politics on some level. Um, I think we should try to pivot though to the, to Zach alluded to this, to the sort of operational questions, right? Because, um, you know, it was odd. You would think on its face that just like a bunch of people could not, in fact, breach the Capitol building, uh, which is pretty secure. Um, right. Everyone who has ever, everyone who lives in D.C. or who has had official business in the Capitol complex has stories about Capitol Police being extremely assertive and aggressive about enforcing the most piddling rules of being in the Capitol complex. So, there, yeah, so which, which I think is the source of a lot of, so much of the cognitive dissonance of Wednesday wasn't just, oh, I thought our democratic institutions were safer than this. It was, oh, the people who are living through this have, to a much larger extent than the average American, had a lot of lived experience with the security state over the last 20 years that we have been told is supposed to protect us from exactly this sort of thing. Yeah, and then it didn't, right? And it's it's one of those things that really, like, it reminds me of nothing more than the, the days after 9-11 where we were constantly debating, like, how did they let this happen? Well, it turns out that there was a memo that said Al-Qaeda determined to strike in the United States, and there were a whole host of intelligence failures that went into this happening. And similarly, like there, there were memos, not necessarily in the government, maybe there were, I don't know, but from actual reputable like online extremism tracking organizations saying, hey, there are a lot of people who are threatening to literally attack the Capitol. Like they're going to bring their guns. A lot of those guns got caught. In fact, one of the leaders of the Proud Boys was picked up by DC police with like a giant drum of um, a drum magazine, like an expanded magazine for firing lots and lots of rounds in your in your gun and basically said, you can't set foot in DC until after the inauguration. But so the fact that the worst didn't happen because of gunfire and some actions by the DC police, 
uh, doesn't mean that everybody is uh, gets off the hook for not thinking about what would happen if you just had a bunch of people literally rush the Capitol and overwhelm the Capitol Police, who could have been supplemented by D.C. police. I don't know why they weren't. Could have been supplemented by National Guard. I don't know why they weren't. Could have deployed even more of their own officers. I don't know why they didn't. And there are all sorts of uh, theories and different pieces of reporting trying to explain why this very, very evident threat that people who worked in this space were screaming from the rooftop about in the weeks running up to it were not listened to. Uh, but I, so far, there are no answers. And there needs to be, I think, a 9-11 commission-style investigation into the like massive planning and intelligence failure that went into this. Well, so, I mean, one layer of it that I think like we do know is that the president of the United States did not want a like heavily reinforced security presence there. That right. like we we saw over the summer. I mean, I think this was Bill Barr's initiative more than Trump's personally. But like the federal government is capable if it decides it wants to of mobilizing a very large quantity of federal police and quasi police people and deploying them to Washington D.C. And they decided they didn't want to do that because obviously if Donald Trump's opinion was that it was dangerous and bad for these people to be gathering, he wouldn't have been organizing the rally in the first place. So there's a little bit of a, a self-referential aspect to it. I would also say kind of on top of that, that the folks who were the folks in government who were less likely to be deferential to Donald Trump on this particular thing were uh Pentagon decision makers who it appears overlearned the lessons of the summer to a certain extent and went, you know, we we are aware that there's a lot of tension around civil military relations right now. And we don't necessarily want to exacerbate that by having, you know, a very obvious presence in D.C. against protesters. I think to people who are not in the federal government, there's an obvious dif- difference between like the optics of going against people who are rallying in opposition to the president and the optics of going against people who are rallying in favor of the president. But it is actually a very typical like federal government way of thinking that you're always fighting the last war. And so I, I think that it's worth bearing in mind that both the people who were characterologically more inclined to say the president thinks they're they're cool, therefore they're cool, and the people who were characterologically less inclined to defer to the president both had strong incentives not to want a very big presence there last week. And then Attorney General Barr had already quit by the right. time this happened, which is like its own story that I think we don't really know what happened. Right. The person who's currently acting attorney general has like not really had a presence. Acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf was over in Bahrain. You know, there there wasn't necessarily the kind of, you know, everybody needs to be all hands on deck mentality that could have led to a faster response from people who weren't Donald Trump. But we also just don't really understand what the Capitol Police themselves were doing. And that happens at both a leadership level and an individual officer level, Uh, because obviously one of the things that has happened over the past few years, and especially the past 12 months, is that policing has become incredibly political, um, and that many police officers have become increasingly invested in partisan politics, including federal partisan politics, right? I mean, for for police unions to be engaged in the political process is incredibly normal, Um, but to be engaged in presidential politics to the extent that they were in the 2020 campaign is odd because it's just not really a federal issue, but it's become such an identity flashpoint, right, in which, you know, uh, 
police officer's understanding of what the Democratic Party has done is that it has defined itself as an anti-police movement and that they, as an identity group, need to stand with the GOP, even in the face of um, the concrete material incentives of like the state and local COVID funding going completely in the opposite direction. So it's hard to know always the difference between officers who are overwhelmed by numbers and therefore withdrawing and officers who just decided, you know, they don't care. And it's hard. I don't think anybody, it's hard to have watched police officers being so aggressive that they were like punching random cameramen and stuff like that at summer protests, then being not uniformly, but certainly in spots, um, seemingly deferential. And we just don't really know. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing I, I, some people, I saw some people drawing incredibly strong conclusions based on fragmentary video on Twitter. And like, you should, just should never do that. Like, you have no idea what you're seeing when you see random videos on Twitter. Uh, but what we also don't know a week later is like, is there a process to review what happened? Uh, the department now has no chief. I think he was fired or pressured into well, he's, resigning. Yeah, he's he's resigned, but he's still you know, he's now like outgoing, um, right. which is right. It's it is. But I do think that this is actually something where we've seen movement in the last few days and where it's useful for folks for whom that was a particularly strong takeaway in the initial aftermath of reporting uh, to kind of just update things because we they did announce yesterday that a couple of Capitol police officers have been suspended, including, you know, the officer who was taking selfies with protesters, the officer who was given and put on a Make America Great Again hat. Like there appears to be some individual level accountability going on, which should be in theory sufficient to address the question of was this abetted by individual Capitol Police officers not understanding the gravity of the threat they were facing. I think it's it's going to take like months or years to know how much the culture of Capitol Police, which like has to deal with tourists a lot and people who are used to following rules and therefore are going to have the muscle memory of when someone who isn't visibly armed comes up to you and asks, where's, you know, Jim Clyburn's office, you're going to give them directions. Like it's, it's, I think it's going to take a 9-11 commission level of review to figure out to what extent that is a problem versus the anecdotes that we're hearing of people being given directions by Capitol Police officers do reflect some kind of underlying sympathy. But, you know, we are beginning to see accounts of people giving directions that weren't in fact accurate or trying to do their best to hold people off. And what remains is the kind of organizational level questions of the outgoing Capitol Police chief gave an interview to the Washington Post in which he claimed he was begging for National Guard reinforcements. Meanwhile, there's a lot of finger pointing about who denied National Guard reinforcements from being deployed to the Capitol in the first place, and some people blaming Capitol Police for that. The kind of between what Donald Trump could have controlled in the days leading up to January 6th and what individual officers were doing once protesters were already rushing the gates is the kind of granular, not sexy, super important work that, you know, Zach, the more I think about it, the more I think you're right, that you need a 9-11 commission style thing to figure out how did a 
multi-level bureaucracy, all of whose levels were supposed to be engineered to prevent something like this from happening, allow something like this to happen? And how can that bureaucracy be reorganized so that there are clear lines of accountability and decision making so that it's no longer an open question who should have said there need to be more bodies on the ground protecting the perimeter of the Capitol? And, and I hope this intersects with the the issues about politicization of police that Matt was just talking about a second ago, right? Because it's not actually new for American police to treat different protesters differently based on their perceived political ideology. Scholars like Christian Davenport and others have done these long-term analyses of police behavior across the country and found that there's a clear statistical relationship between two things in terms of police deployments in force and use of violence at the protests, right? The first is perception of threat the degree to which the police officers see the protesters as physically threatening to them. And second is uh, the political valence of the protesters, like whether they see them as politically hostile to police or ideologically hostile to whatever causes the police themselves are committed to. But now the thing that is new is the degree to which policing is not only politicized, but enlisted in this broader struggle about the character of the American democratic state that we've been talking about, right? These protesters carried Blue Lives Matter flags, like the thin blue line flags um, that are the black and white American flag with a blue line in the middle. Uh, they shouted at the officers who are resisting them, like, you're supposed to be on our side, but then treated them more, it almost seems like more harshly because they felt betrayed by the police who they claimed to be defending. I believe one line from the protesters was, uh, we're doing this for you, right? And so the question of how the police understand their own role, the extent to which officers, not just in the Capitol Police, but in state capitals as well, where you're seeing similar sort of mob threats and, and especially armed people entering them. Uh, like, how do the officers understand their relationship to those protesters in this violent movement? Do they see themselves as guarantors of the political order, or do they see themselves as aligned with a particular faction that is very comfortable with the use of force and, and the routine deployment of it to accomplish political ends? And to what extent did that mindset, which is prevalent not just in the Capitol Police, but again in the broader structure of American policing, facilitate what we saw last Wednesday? It seems to me to be an essential question for this kind of commission to investigate and really for people to grapple with in general when thinking about police reform. But I mean, yeah, I mean, this is what I was going to say is that uh, the, the Capitol Police is a bit of a unique beast, right? Uh, but Democratic Party mayors and activists and progressives more broadly, I think need to take this topic seriously in multiple dimensions, right? Like one of those dimensions is trying to implement reforms that improve the situation. Um, Zach did a great piece about the culture of policing in the United States. There are a lot of problems with it. I think that um, reforms need to target that. Uh, some of that is very, um, I think, simple. Some of this, this like warrior style trainings you could like not do. But, you know, a lot of it's hard. Institutional culture is a difficult problem. Um, but I think it indicates that trying to recruit a more diverse base of officers is perhaps higher value than a superficial look at it would tell you. Because, you know, Black and Latino officers commit acts of misconduct too, um, but I think are less likely, based on general political demographics, to conceptualize themselves as like the sharp end of the stick of right-wing politics in the United States. But also people should, I mean, 
I think like watch it a little with the all cops are bastards stuff and the rhetorical slippage between I think we ought to put more money into social services and mental health and the I think we ought to eliminate policing as a social function because somehow I knew this conversation would end yeah. up with Matt saying that defund yep. the police is bad. I, I, I didn't know how, but I'm, I'm glad to see that we got there. Yeah, because there is a but like honestly a conversation that gets to the social function of police in question through looking at whose order are the police protecting and how do they conceptualize themselves as a social body that is sometimes distinct from and sometimes aligned with various political forces is not the worst way to go about this like a conversation that that understands that MPD would have done some different things on January 6th or that for that matter, understands that the the extent to which there was enthusiasm for the National Guard coming in, in indicates that people have absorbed that military and semi-military bodies operate under different rules of engagement that are more restrained, frankly, than what we see in most policing. Like, that's not the worst way for that conversation to go. Okay, I'm, I'm going to let Dara have, have the last word on that before we, we totally derail. Um, let's take another break and come back with our white paper, which does also get at some of these questions about law enforcement institutions. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So... This paper uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, I thought so anyway, which is why I suggested it when I was going to be on the show. It is about uh, transitions from autocratic political systems to democracy and how that affects the murder rate uh, in in the way that the transitions were handled. Now, you might not think that there's anything that's like obvious about the connection between those two things. Like, what, what would that be? But the explanation in the paper offers uh, is really interesting, right? The argument is that when you don't hold members of the police and military accountable for misbehavior that they did while they were authoritarian agents of the state, that is to say torture, you know, renditions, just holding people without charge and so on, they then go on to use their expertise at using military force against... Uh, different kinds of people and in the service of private ends, once they can no longer legally do so for the state. So the that is to say they go join criminal organizations. And one of the examples in the paper is that former members of a um, Mexican elite military unit, once uh, they left government, were no longer allowed to do the sort of violent things that they did while in government, defected and uh, joined the Zetas. In fact, created the Zetas, which are uh, one of the main enforcers for the Mexican drug cartels and are a significant contributor to violence in Mexico right now. So the argument the paper makes is that if you hold people accountable uh, during the transition from authoritarian to democratic rule through two mechanisms, one is trials and two truth commissions that expose behaviors by members of the state security apparatuses, they are less likely to subsequently go join criminal organizations because they are concerned about prosecution or uh, otherwise just being exposed for 
horrible behaviors that they've done and, and feeling caught. I thought this paper was super fascinating. I mean, it's a really interesting set of linkages across multiple dimensions. I wonder, though, you know, so sometimes in life, right, you, you have a strong statistical correlation, uh, but it's actually explained by an underlying third variable, right? And the main thing this made me wonder is, well, do countries not establish accountability for human rights violations on the part of the former regime security services for the exact same underlying reason that a country like Mexico can't apply accountability to the Zetas, right? That it's like some kind of underlying infirmity that is not observed in their in their sample set, right? Because you could imagine, you know, counterfactual Mexico post-PRI regime says, all right, like we're going after everybody, right? There's going to be trials. There's going to be truth commissions. And then that becomes the reason that a bunch of security forces defect and they become the Zetas. And now we're looking back and we're saying, well, you know, if they did an amnesty program, maybe we wouldn't have had these problems. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I feel like there's sort of good general considerations to favor accountability. Um, so I... I'm not like opposed to this exactly, but I, I had my doubts, I guess, that the countries that are facing these problems actually could implement the kind of strong accountability measures that are being recommended here. So I think that's valid, but I think that's something that might help clarify what we're talking about when we talk about kind of the strength of institutions is that the model they're sketching out in this paper is that there are multiple ways that the kind of forces of impunity under an authoritarian regime can then undermine the rule of law in the post-authoritarian regime. And, you know, in addition to the way that Zach laid out with those forces of impunity themselves going into organized crime, they can remain in government and, you know, kind of serve as validators and the kind of corrupt inroads for organized crime, or they can take a kind of mano dura, like a, a, you know, tough, uncompromising to the point of like show of force attitude toward organized crime, which itself undermines the rule of law overall by continuing to empower the officers of the state to act with extraordinary violence at every turn. And so, you know, yes, if you think about it, like it, it does, it is, it's, it's harder to bring people to trial than it is to shoot them in dawn raids. Uh, and so to that extent, Matt, you might be correct that, you just need a certain underlying strength of institutions in order to get to this point. But it's not exactly like the choices between like total impunity and authoritarianism. There are, are ways that, you know, something that looks like a rebuke against organized crime can instead continue to undermine the sense of public safety that like people on the streets feel because instead of acting in service of crimes against the regime, they're acting in service of organized criminal groups. The paper tries to get at some of these these concerns, uh, I think, on both points. For for one thing, they uh, not only tested the trials and truth commissions together, but also tested them independently and found, interestingly, that trials on their own were not very good. In fact, some arguably increased the murder rate. Uh, indicating that if you just tried to arrest people and round them up, uh, possibly that created an incentive for people to go into organized crime um, because that was a way of, of being protected from the state. That's one theory anyway as to what that could be. Uh, but truth commissions on their own were in their model effective at reducing the murder rate. 
it is not clear to me why that would be true. I, I'm not I'm not sure what the explanation is that's particularly cogent. And I wonder if there's some kind of unobserved variable going on per Matt's earlier point. The paper's attempt to control for unobserved variables tried to compare somehow countries that did truth commissions with each other in Latin America specifically. I don't know how that like I just didn't follow how the procedure would operate when I was reading the paper. And I'm not sure if it was sufficient. Like, I don't know how this it was a randomization thing, how it would actually account for unobserved variables. That strikes me as something that's impossible. But it is something that, to the author's credit, they were concerned about and attempted some kind of statistical wizardry to address in the paper, even if it was somewhat difficult to follow. Right. I mean, I you know, just in terms of their descriptive results, right? I mean, one thing they find is that most of the cases are from Latin America, um, but they also find muted impacts outside of Latin America. And then inside Latin America, right, the the cases sort of cluster because they have Argentina, Chile, and Peru as like the good outcome and uh, Mexico and several Central American countries as a kind of paradigmatic bad outcomes. I don't know exactly how you would characterize that regional difference. Uh, like, like literally, I don't know what the word is for like the countries at the southern end of Latin America versus the ones at the northern end. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a non-random distribution, right, pretty clearly. And I don't know exactly what the nature of the spillovers is. I do happen to know because we've done enough podcasts about migrants from the Northern Triangle of Central America that they were just very literal organized crime spillovers across those countries, right? Like the border between El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, all that stuff is just not that hard and fast. Criminal organizations operate across those lines. And we know from the history of the military interventions in the 1980s that, again, it was a very much a, a like internal political struggles had a strong international dimension in that region of the world. Um, it's There's not um, incredibly strong differentiation and guerrillas cross borders, things like that. But I thought what was interesting was the understanding that the human rights question does relate to the general question of social order and social stability. And that, you know, if you don't establish the view that in some sense, like, the police agencies serve the public, um, that you see actually like a, a broad range of bad outcomes, that you don't just want to say, well, it's fine, they didn't do a coup. Um, democracy remained in effect, but it's like, well, is it effective? Like, do they give people a sense of personal security in their homes? Or do you get the outcome that we see in El Salvador, where um, the, the formal aspects of the post-Civil War democracy remain in place, but like the actual situation people experience is still really, really bad and violent and, and chaotic on a day-to-day -day basis, and that we need to target a sort of richer set of outcomes in terms of like, what are we hoping to achieve in this transition? Yeah, one one of the interesting findings in this broader literature, there's like a huge debate over exactly how to relate accountability and justice uh, and stability in in a post-authoritarian or post-conflict environment. And like there's this theoretical trade-off, right? One argument is that if you do, if you give people amnesty, then they're less likely to act as anti-democratic spoilers, by which they mean like use their political influence or or actual arms to disrupt the process of democratic consolidation. 
But then there are people who fit the sort of argument of this paper, which is that if you don't punish people for their actions, they will then engage in behavior that undermines the stability of the post-authoritarian post-war settlement. And so there's the, the emerging perspective after these like two starkly opposed theoretical views emerged in the 90s and 2000s is like, it's both. Right. And everything has to, like it always is. And everything operates on a continuum. And you need to figure out and tailor approaches to the specific contours of individual cases to understand what balance of accountability versus, uh, like, st- well, which stability is the goal, right? So it's not that there's no, you're trading off between stability and some abstract ideal of justice in this case. It's two different approaches to stability. And the question is whether you know, co-optation or amnesty is the right approach or punishment uh, and non-rehabilitation, but rather like deterrence is the right approach in this case. And like, I I was reading this paper in part because I was curious what we know about punishing leaders in democracies for uh, authoritarian or, or order undermining behaviors as per maybe our earlier conversation on the show. And this doesn't really answer the questions that I have about what to do in the United States, about how to create accountability. But it does, I think, give us a theoretical framework for thinking through the potential options for what we do in a world where we're coming out of a presidency that was functionally engaged in like an authoritarian democracy subordinating effort. Uh, thank you so much, Zach. Um, thanks, as always, uh, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Eric Janakis. Um, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.